This week on Geek Explained, we're celebrating Valentine's Day by counting down the top five couples in all of comics. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Zana, and today's episode is celebrating Valentine's Day. Um, this is probably going to come out late because that is just uh, that is just what's going to happen. Because uh, this Valentine's Day also happens to be my anniversary, um, and my whole deal with schedules and timing is always off around those kind of uh, special occasions like that so if this does go up late I do apologize Um, but I wanted to put this out and wanted to count down the top five couples in all of comics Uh, this is going to include both Marvel and DC and um, this was hard this was a difficult uh, difficult little uh list to come up with we had multiple um uh multiple couples trade spots go in different spots get bumped off the list come back onto the list and um i will be doing a few honorable mentions a little bit later on but um yeah this was difficult so i guess i will go ahead and jump into the countdown and we are starting off with number five which is scott summers and Jean gray cyclops and the phoenix was known as marvel girl or however many uh code names Jean gray has uh this is the classic this is um for a lot of marvel fans especially x-men fans this is uh the og couple uh started way back in the 60s they were almost at least from the way it was written destined to be together and it's really interesting seeing throughout the years their relationship grow blossom then hit you know speed bumps have to recover but throughout all of that throughout decades and decades and decades of uh plot twists of crazy clones of um alternate timeline reality uh children they have stuck together they've always found their way back to each other and that's something that i think is pretty sweet uh they've of course been separated through multiple uh plot devices whether it was divorce whether it was death multiple times gene gray is one of the most killable uh comics characters of all time and it was uh it's funny how you see some people who aren't necessarily created to be in a couple, like I think one of our uh, other couples on this list, kind of always find their way back to each other, even though they're very different characters. Scott Summers is very, uh, by the book, very straight-laced, at least in his initial characterizations, and later on he becomes a little bit more uh, militant, a little bit more angry, gives gets a little bit more of an edge and um i would be interested now since uh gene gray has recently come back and i think in the last like two weeks scott summers has also come back so it'll be interesting to see how gene uh reacts to this more angry harder edged scott now that uh, a lot of time has passed between the last time they were like together together but the only reason that this uh, is not further up on the list, because I'm sure a lot of people would have this further up on the list, my reasoning personally is that these two never really seemed to uh, click. Every single time there was something that could go wrong, it did go wrong, and the fact that uh, they haven't been a couple in a really long time kind of knocks it a little bit further down the list. Uh, number four, we have Reed Richards and Sue Storm, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman of the Fantastic Four. Uh, for a lot of people, this is going to be number one, and I totally understand that. I totally get it. 
uh, what I was just talking about with the whole um, some characters are made are created as a couple to be a couple I feel like really applies here uh, these two characters really uh, were introduced together and are always linked and have always been linked they've been married for god knows how long they were already a couple when uh, Fantastic Four made its debut way back in the 60s and uh, they're still together today they even have uh, two children Flink, F Flanklin, Franklin and Valeria um, who are just hitting like preteen ages I think at this point and uh, they're re-entry into the Marvel Universe came with a lot of fanfare. They're finally back after being gone since the events of Secret Wars. Uh, these two met in college. I believe they met in college. Had their ups and downs. Um, the, uh, the relationship has been strained often because of Reed's inability to really um, work on his priorities. Uh, he often sets his scientific achievements as well as the work that he could be doing for the greater world uh, above his marriage, which of course puts strain on their relationship as well as uh, their team dynamic. And that's something that I think works really well when it comes to um, character development, plot lines, narrative. Uh, there's always the, oh, is Reed going to be too busy, or what, how is their relationship going to impact how they tackle a certain uh, idea? And what really comes down to a lot of people when, they, when it comes to um, people who are against this relationship is one word, and one word only, and that is Namor. Namor has been a thorn in the side of Reed Richards for as long as I can remember. And I love, love, love that contrast between the two characters. Reed Richards is very bookish, very um, aloof, neurotic. He is unable to really uh, prioritize the things that should be important over the things that he thinks are important. And um, it is... It is really interesting to see that in contrast to Namor, who is, you know, handsome, good-looking, you know, commanding in his presence. He's a king, for God's sake. And he, for whatever reason, has set his sights on another man's wife. And I get it. Sue Storm is an incredible character, one of the most powerful characters in the entire Marvel Universe. And I really am uh, surprised that there have not been any stories where Sue has actively uh, cheated on Reed, but throughout all of this, throughout all of Namor's courting, throughout all of the uh, ups and downs that they have had in their marriage, Sue has remained faithful, and I think it's always interesting to see any kind of interactions between the two of them and Namor with whatever else is going on, whether it be uh, just regular team-up adventures, a huge uh, planet-wide crossover, or what have you, that he always makes them feel super awkward because Sue is like, oh, hey, Namor, like, what's going on? And Reed is always like, I don't like this guy. I don't like him. And they even brought that up in uh, the most recent uh, Fantastic Four run that's currently going on with um, Dan Slott and Sarah Pacelli, where uh, in the first, uh, in the f I want to say the first or second issue, they're in an alternate universe where they are helping an alien species grow and develop as a civilization. And Valeria, who it takes after both of her parents a lot in the fact that she is uh, very grounded and down to earth, like Sue, but is also incredibly smart, and that oftentimes will. Uh, develop into sometimes arrogance and neurotic tendencies like Reed. But Valeria falls for this, uh, I want to say he's like a prince of the civilization, and he is textbook young Namor, just from his mannerisms, the way he carries himself, the way he talks to Valeria. And it's so funny because Reed even says, he's like, I don't quite understand why I don't like him and I don't want you near him <laughs> because he sees a young Namor and he sees the guy who has tried to steal his wife on more than one occasion so I really like that I really like their whole relationship and I um 
I just like how they've weathered the storm throughout uh, changing continuities, throughout the birth of two children, throughout um, every single continuity shift, every crossover, every uh, disbanding of the team, reformation of the team. It's always Reed and Sue, and I really appreciate that about them. Uh, number three is, I think, might surprise some people, but it is Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance, Green Arrow and Black Canary. Now, this might, this might be a controversial pick to go above Reed and Sue or uh, Scott and Jean, but I, for the life of me, I cannot picture two people who fit each other better than Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance. From their backgrounds being complete opposites of each other to the fact that anytime they're together, it just fits everyone. Um, fans comment that it just makes sense they're together. Uh, people in continuity, in their respective universe, are always like, done and Oliver, that's the dream. Because they offset, they balance each other, they... Uh, Everything that Oliver lacks, Dinah provides, and vice versa. Uh, Dinah is very grounded, she's very focused, she's very driven, where Oliver sometimes has a way of meandering. Uh, the Oliver Queen in the comics is not always one-to-one -one when you're comparing him to uh, the Stephen Amell CW version of Oliver Queen. Uh, that version takes a lot more from Batman, I think, at times. but. Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance, there is a reason that these two, no matter how far DC Editorial tries to pull them apart, they always find their way back to each other, and I think that is something that uh, the DC Rebirth uh, run of Green Arrow has shown uh, prominently, because when the New 52 happened, here, I'll, I'll, I'll back up, I'll back up to uh, before that. They have gone through ups and downs together. They, at one point, semi-retired and opened up a, uh, a flower shop. And I love that. I love that because that's something that Dinah... Um, that's something that you could easily see Dinah doing, but you can't easily see Oliver doing. And I love the fact that for a while they were retired and running this flower shop. And I can't remember the name of the flower shop, but I know it was Robin Hood influenced. Um, but of course, you know, because of superheroics, because of comics, they were brought back into the fold um, with Oliver's uh, wandering eyes, we'll say. Um, we got Connor Hawk. Uh, at which, whenever he was introduced or reintroduced into the story, always treated Dinah like a surrogate mother. And I really appreciate that, because the two of them, Oliver and Dinah, always settled into this kind of um, bickering but loving couple, where they always covered for each other, they were always there for each other, no matter what negative things happened. When Oliver died, um, it was a huge blow to Dinah, and she... In almost, I would say, a reversal of what a lot of people call fridging, uh, which is where, narratively, a female character is killed to drive character development within a male character. This was a really, uh, I think, a really cool uh, inverse of that, where the death of Oliver spurred on a lot of um, character, de character development and change in Dinah. And of course, when he came back, there was all of this, all this time had passed, Dinah was almost a different person, and they had to re-kind of find their footing. And then when the New 52 happened, because up until, uh, through Final Crisis, uh, Blackest Night, Brightest Day, the whole deal, uh, Dinah and Oliver were an item. But when the New 52 happened, they were separated. They had never been together. They had never even met. And it was a shame. It was a damn shame, and a lot of people, myself included, were up in arms about the fact that they were now not an item. And when uh, DC Editorial was basically like, well, you know, this gives these characters the opportunity to meet each other again, and who knows, they may, you know, reignite that spark. It's like, yeah, but if that's the end goal, if that is the end goal, why not just start us there? not have them leading completely different lives, and I get it. I really enjoyed the um, 
the New 52 Green Arrow run for the first few arcs, but you could tell that something was missing, and what was missing was the dynamic that he has with Dinah. And the two of them, again, they complement each other so well that all the way up until uh, DC Rebirth, people were still uh, campaigning and championing for these two to get back together. And when DC Rebirth came around and the latest uh, Green Hour run began, the first issue started off with them meeting once again, and it was it was magical. It was magic. I I challenge anyone who has read comics for any length of time to find me a better meet cute in the last five years than Dinah and Oliver meeting once again. Because again, and they even reference it in the actual issue, something feels right. Something feels like coming home when you see the two of them together. They are one of the most long-standing couples in comics because they work. They weather the storm every single time. And throughout this run, which has been very good, if you haven't been reading the Oliver uh, or the uh, Green Arrow run since Rebirth, definitely pick it up. It's been so good so far. And even through all the stuff that's going on, especially with uh, the last few, uh, I would say the last year or so in the Green Arrow comics, where after I want to say it was after uh, No Justice, Green Arrow was essentially given the uh, the panic button, so to speak, where he was given the secret contingency plans to take down the Justice League. He was bequeathed... Um, uh, they were bequeathed to him by Batman, who, in a stroke of genius, I think, really, uh, both in character and narratively, uh, gave them to him because he feels that Oliver is the person on the ground level and will be able to make that choice when the time comes, if the time comes, to take the Justice League down. And that really um, builds into this most recent crossover, which is Heroes in Crisis, where, uh, spoiler alert, Roy is seemingly killed. And there is a beautiful and really, really well done uh, Heroes in Crisis tie-in issue with Green Arrow, where they are all attending Roy's funeral, and in this, Green Arrow is just incensed about all this. He is, he can't believe that this happened, he can't believe that Batman, Diana, and Bruce let this happen, and, or Batman, Diana, and Clark, uh, let this happen, that his most trusted friend, his most trusted sidekick, his most trusted partner was killed because of whatever happened there. And he struggles with this idea of, I can get revenge on them. I can avenge, quote unquote, avenge my partner by using this uh, break in case of emergency uh, contingency plan to take all of them down. And it's Dinah who ends up talking him off the ledge for this. And again, they support each other. They are... Um, there for each other at their lowest points and I really appreciate that and that's what they've been throughout their entire relationship together through the ups and downs through the multiple crises that have happened the two of them are something that you can always count on and I'm really really hoping that everyone behind DC editorial doesn't try to find a way to break them apart again that brings us to our number two. We are getting close to uh, the end here. Uh, and our number two, and I will say, number two, the number two and number one spots bounced a couple of times. They swapped at least two or three times. But when I looked at both of the relationships in the number one and number two spots, I could not place this above the number one spot. And the number two spot is... Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson, Spider-Man and MJ. Um, again, this is something that I totally understand and uh, can find merit in people making this their number one. I get it, totally do. Uh, but knowing that, I couldn't put it above the number one. That being said, P 
Peter and MJ is one of the defining couples when you talk about love in comics. Not just in the Marvel Universe, not just in the uh, terrestrial Marvel Universe, not just in Marvel's New York. This is one of the most defining relationships in all of comics. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. So these two were initially brought together because... Um, fans and Marvel editorial really wanted to find a contrast for Gwen Stacy, who at that point, back in the 60s, had really kind of told all of the narrative stories that you could tell with her. Uh, she was made to be almost the perfect complement to Peter um, in, the f in the idea that she was essentially uh, kind of just created to be um, his partner. Uh, it was the idea that I don't know, and I'm not going to say definitively because fact checkers will uh, let me know whether I'm right or wrong in saying this, but um, she had fallen into what I kind of uh, what I kind of believe is the, uh, the Archie trap, where you have Archie and Betty. Those are the original couple, they complement each other, but at a certain point you tell all of the stories that you can because there's no conflict. Because Betty will always be there for Archie and Archie will always be there for Betty. And that is why you introduce a character like Veronica to offset that, to create a love triangle, and to basically create an antithesis to Betty's character. And that's exactly what Mary Jane Watson was for Gwen Stacy. She was arrogant, she was loud, she was um, very opinionated and not afraid to share her opinion. Where Gwen Stacy had kind of fallen into this, oh shucks, well I will wait for Peter and we will, um, you know, figure out. Uh, I Again, I don't know which came first, uh, Archie, Betty, Veronica, or Peter, Gwen, MJ, but they fulfill a lot of the same uh, same story beats narratively and Mary Jane was brought in to be that foil for Gwen Stacy and immediately she took off what I think a lot of people were worried about was oh these uh, fans and readers have become so acquainted with Gwen that introducing a foil to her might not go on so well but that could not be further from the truth because people jumped onto the Mary Jane bandwagon super quick and this resulted in later on down the line the death of Gwen Stacy as a character because again they had told all the stories that they could tell with her and people had shifted towards seeing Mary Jane and Peter as the true spider couple because Mary Jane challenges Peter she isn't someone who uh, will sit by the phone and wait for him. She is someone who will argue with him, especially when you come to the uh, point in the relationship where she, uh, I guess, more or less reveals to him that she's kind of always known that he was Spider-Man, but waited for uh, Peter to feel comfortable and trust her enough to reveal it himself. And again, I love that. I love the idea of you're dating this person and they have this other secret life that they don't think you know about, that you do know about, but you wait until they can, until they are comfortable sharing that with you. I love that about their character and I'm really, really, really happy that they touched on that beat because you don't really see that a lot in superhero romances. And they were a strong couple for a very long time. They even got their uh, comics wedding, which doesn't happen very often. You don't see weddings between two comics characters go down without shenanigans happening. And of course shenanigans did ensue, but they were able to actually get married and were a married couple for a fair amount of time until we get to one more day. And that, this is one of the big reasons why this, uh, this specific couple uh, fell into the number two spot for me, and that is because of the storyline One More Day. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, One More Day uh, deals with the, uh, the world post-Civil War, where uh, 
Peter has revealed his identity to the world uh, during the Civil War. And post-Civil War, he switch sides to Cap's side, but it doesn't make things easier on him, especially because essentially Cap lost the Civil War. And following this, because uh, Peter outed his identity, all of his villains now know who he is. They can look up where he works, where he lives, who his relatives are, who his loved ones are. And Aunt May is unfortunately a casualty of this development and this uh, narrative turn where she is almost killed in an attack. And she is clinging to life. Peter is just completely distraught. He doesn't know how to fix this. There's nothing that he can do. So he strikes up a deal with Mephisto. Mephisto is willing to save Aunt May's life, but there has to be a cost. There has to be a cost, and that cost is wiping the war or wiping the marriage between Peter and MJ from history. They never got married. They were never in a relationship. He wants to give all of the days that their relationship seemingly would have had together and trades it for the days that he could give to Aunt May. And this was a controversial opinion and a controversial story uh, for a lot of reasons. First of all, because the, uh, the MJ and Peter romance had gone through so many hurdles that this felt like uh, Marvel editorial basically saying, oh, we don't want this anymore. We want to go back to what the, uh, what the mainstream sees Spider-Man as, which sucked, and I didn't like that. And a lot of people didn't like that. But ultimately, uh, Peter and MJ decide to go through with the deal, with MJ giving the caveat that um, the world will also forget that Peter is Spider-Man. And following this, we enter into Brand New Day, where Peter wakes up, having never been married to MJ, but Aunt May is alive and well. And this was the status quo for a while, for years following this. And... God, it just, it's really, it's frustrating when you see something like this get sidetracked and brought all the way back to the uh, narrative beginning. And it has slowly started to become more, um, has slowly started to become fixed throughout the years. Uh, they did re-meet, they did uh, spark a kind of an off-again, on-again romance. Uh, one of my favorite points of their relationship was during the Dan Slott Superior Spider-Man run where Otto Octavius was in control of Peter Parker's body and uh, saw this uh, back and forth on again off again relationship that he and Mary Jane had and broke it off because he's like this isn't going to work why would I uh, devote time to this when I know it's not going to work loved it it was one of my favorite parts of that run and then um, recently Nick Spencer along with, um, God, I want to say his name's Ryan Otley, is the artist, and I'm so sorry if that is not the name of the artist. I do apologize. In the most recent Amazing Spider-Man run, in the very first issue, the two of them come back together. And it's another thing, kind of like what I was talking about with Dinah and Oliver, it's like coming home. It's like, this is something that has been and should be. And I really... I love that. I love that they're together again. I love that they're trying to make things work in only the way that they should, because Peter has the Parker luck, MJ is a driven, career-focused individual who has her own life separate from Peter's, and that's something that I really appreciate about them, that she is not constantly defined as Peter Parker's love interest. <laughs> Excuse me, there was even a uh, run during the... Um, Brian Michael Bendis uh, Iron Man run where Mary Jane took the role of Pepper as his secretary and we got to see a lot of those narrative beats uh, coincide and coalesce and I really enjoyed seeing her grow as a character and I'm hoping that they continue to grow and build upon that relationship to the point that if we do get another marriage between the two of them then we can see how 
they are challenged by today's landscape because today's Marvel landscape is much, much different from the landscape that it was during Civil War, during Brand New Day, during One More Day. So I'd be interested to see how that goes. And before we get to uh, our number one, as stated earlier, I do have some honorable mentions. Let me grab my notes right here. And I've got, oh, I've got five. I've got five honorable mentions. And the first one I'm going to name off here is the uh, is the couple that almost bumped our number five off the list, that being Scott Summers and Jean Grey. This couple is Scott Summers and Emma Frost. I love this couple. <laughs> I know that's uh, it's probably sacrilege for a lot of people, especially X-Men fans, but I almost, and I will say this is a personal, personal opinionated choice. This is just my personal opinion. I like Emma over Jean when it relates to being a love interest for Scott Summers. I think in the same way that I was talking about with uh, Mary Jane challenging uh, Peter, Emma challenges Scott. And the fact, the idea that their whole relationship started off with an affair isn't a good look for either of them, especially Scott Summers. But once they really settled into be, having a relationship, being a couple, uh, kind of running the Xavier School together, I really, I, I, I fell in love with that relationship. I really enjoyed seeing the two of them together and being able to really understand how they contrast and complement each other because Emma could not be further from who Scott Summers is. But again, when I was talking earlier about this new Scott Summers who has an edge to him, who has become more militant, who is willing to do what is necessary sometimes over what is right, it really, it really got interesting at those times where you would see Emma almost be the voice of reason for a Scott who is trying so hard to fit his square philosophies into a circle situation. And seeing them complement each other, I really enjoyed. But again, because it was, in the grand scheme of the Marvel Universe, so short-lived and did not start off on the best terms, it did just get bumped off of the list for me. Uh, we also have uh, Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. For those of you who uh, know me, have listened to me for a while, um, I am a huge Dick Grayson Nightwing fan. I have always been a fan of Dick Grayson. He is a character who I personally feel like I grew up with, and I, um, I view him in that same tier as like a Captain America and a Superman. And a lot of people who know me and know that about me are going to be surprised that they are not on this list. And they are not on this list solely for the fact that as good as they are when they're together, as good as they are when they're written well, when they are put in certain situations together as a couple, they are better as separate characters who have had a messy romantic history. I love the idea that the two of them in their relationship is almost like an addiction that you keep coming back to every so often, but when you, um, when you are in the thick of it, you realize why this doesn't work. Um, the two of them are very different as characters. Uh, Dick is very flighty. He gets itchy feet moving around all the time. He's very uh, fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants improvisational, where Babs is more methodical. She's more logical. She likes to keep her feet on the ground. And, and I just... I They never work as a couple, narratively. Um, I think they complement each other really well, but I couldn't put them on the list solely for the fact that they are two amazing, amazing characters who just, for whatever reason or another, don't work together. Next up, almost a similar situation. Uh, next up on the honorable mentions is Bruce and Selina. Bruce Wayne, Selina Kyle, Batman and Catwoman, Bat and Cat. Um, a lot of people, I think especially with the uh, most recent Tom King run, are really sweet on the Batman-Catwoman relationship. And I am too, don't get me wrong. I was just as disappointed and outraged as the next person at Batman number 50, supposedly the wedding special, 
where they didn't end up getting married after having devoted a considerable amount of issues to building up to this wedding. But when you take a step back, when you look at it, that is another relationship where they are two amazing characters that seemingly complement each other enough that you could see them together forever, but they just don't work for whatever reason narratively when they are together. There's always something that pulls them apart, and for me, in my personal opinion, that is the mission. Batman will not put anything above the mission. And even though, uh, at least in the most recent, uh, in Batman number 50, the whole reason that Selina kind of leaves him at the altar is because she doesn't think that a happy Batman can exist, that Batman will not exist if Bruce is happy, which I could see some merit to, absolutely. I don't, ah, I don't, I don't feel like she would know that. I don't feel like she would view it in that way, and I realize they were getting manipulated by outside sources, but I feel like if they wanted to tell that story, they almost didn't need to have her come to that realization until further on um and that's just me that's me and i didn't mean this to uh turn into a criticism of the marriage storyline but um yeah for those reasons and uh others that that is why they didn't make the list for me uh next up we have diana prince and steve trevor I feel is one of those iconic relationships. Uh, it's something that I think worked really well in the uh, Wonder Woman movie with Gal Gadot and uh, Chris Pine. They had such amazing chemistry together. Um, but this is another one of those where it's like you really you root for them, but they don't work for whatever reason. Um, Steve Trevor is always the uh, the soldier man who is constantly being. Uh, pulled and pushed around by the U.S. government, and Diana is a woman without a government. And no matter what they uh, try to do, they always get pulled apart, so that is something that I uh, I have to uh, put as kind of a knock against them in that respect. Uh, and then finally, Steve Rogers, Sharon Carter, uh, the uh, Captain America, Agent 13, uh, they were very close to being on this list. They were so close, in fact, that once again, they almost knocked uh, Scott Summers and Jean Grey off of the number five spot. Uh, at a certain point, I had them at number three. And what separates them is just this idea that there has been so much that has happened. The fact that Originally, uh, Steve was in love with her, depending on her aunt, her grandmother, her mother, depending on your continuity. Um, the idea that they were kind of brought together has always, for me, kind of felt forced at times. And though now, in the most recent, um, most recent uh, Captain America runs, those being by Nick Spencer, by Mark Wade, and down by uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I love their relationship together, but there's always this underlying idea of how is it going to end? How is it going to be shaken up? How is it going to be broken apart? And for that reason, I think I couldn't, I couldn't put it on the list. So those are my honorable mentions, um, and we will jump into the number one spot. And the number one spot, I'm sure, at this point is a surprise to absolutely no one, is Clark Kent and Lois Lane, Superman and Lois, Clark and Lois, the original comics couple. Um, they're just the best, man. They, they really are. Back way back from being established in uh, 1938 as possible romantic... Uh, as a possible uh, romantic interest for each other, they have stood the test of time through literally everything. Continuity shakeups, marriages, divorces, death have made their way through the decades, through the years, um, over 50 years, almost nearing in, what is this going to be? about 20 years. In 20 years, they'll have lived 
their relationship will have lived for a hundred, a century. That's how long they'll have been around for. And no matter what continuity it is, no matter what Earth it is, you always find them together. Whether that be Golden Age, a.k.a. Earth 2, where they seemingly retired, have children, the whole deal. Whether that's uh, New 52, where they inevitably find their way to each other and then apart from each other once again. Whether it's pre-crisis slash uh, post-crisis slash rebirth. Uh, slash pre-New 52, they have always been together. They are the couple that complements and contrasts each other. You want to talk about uh, challenging each other, this is where that starts. Every single comics couple that has ever existed always draws some inspiration from the Clark and Lois relationship. They, I can't say enough good things about them. I could fill an entire podcast just devoted to chronicling and praising the relationship between Clark and Lois. But uh, since I don't want to fill up three hours worth of uh, just praising Clark and Lois the entire time, I will instead give you a couple uh, comics that I think you should check out if you want to see what I mean. Uh, the first one, the one that I think uh, you should definitely check out, the most recent, is the uh, Tomasi Gleason Superman run. This is the Superman Rebirth run that they uh, had almost 50 issues with, uh, showcasing the pre-New 52 Superman and Lois and their young son John uh, kind of entering into the New 52 world and really settling a life together and you get to see them be a married couple be parents deal with all of the uh, trials and tribulations that comes with that um i would also check out uh the adventures of uh clark and lois which is kind of the i guess you could call it the prequel comic to that run where it shows them jumping from uh the pre-new 52 slash convergence events into the new 52 and watching them kind of flying under the radar while they deal with a uh, another superman and another lois occupying the world so definitely check those out i would also check out uh, all-star superman a wonderful wonderful uh expose on their relationship how they are together how good they are together and then, of course, you could also check out uh, The Death and Return of Superman, because that is a very uh, Lois and Clark-centered story, regardless of all the wacky happenings that uh, happens in between. But that is going to do it for uh, this countdown, the top five uh, couples in comics. Um, if you have or haven't noticed, uh, I've been having some issues with my mic this week, which is why the uh, the audio quality isn't quite up to par of what I usually do, so thank you for sitting through uh, this less than, um, uh, less than perfect audio quality uh, and listening through all the way to the end here. I really do appreciate that, and it helps us out. So, um, yeah, if you disagree if you have your own lists on the top five comics couples uh feel free to let me know uh feel free to share that and give us a follow on twitter at geeksplainpod that's at geeksplainpod you could also share uh your top five list or maybe your favorite comics couple uh in an email because i'm an old man and i still read emails you can send any and all emails to geeksplained at gmail.com i would love to uh, pick up next week and kind of get some uh, kind of get some of your thoughts and your opinions on it I would love to have a kind of a follow up and see where uh, my list ranks where these people whether you would shake the list around whether you would take some out and put some new ones in or whether I'm completely off about my picks uh, feel free to share that with me and if we uh, do get any i will definitely share them on next week's episode but that is going to do it for this week's episode make sure you stick around after the jump for this week's comics countdown
Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I let you know what books that I'm picking up this week and the books that I think you should pick up this week. Uh, Typically it's five books, though sometimes more, sometimes less. We'll be covering the title, the creative team, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And as always, these synopses will be accompanied by my synopsis voice. Uh, Multiple voices for multiple books. If you have a synopsis voice that you think I should try out for a uh, particular book that is on the list, feel free to let us know that at Pod on Twitter. That's at GeekSplainedPod. Uh, this week I've got five books for you. Uh, we're looking at uh, three Marvel, two DC. Uh, we, <laughs> for the first time, and it feels like a long time, we are actually covering five books. Um, typically, it'll uh, probably be more because there's a lot of good stuff going out uh, currently. But this week we are going to kick it off with Dead Man Logan number four. Uh, this is written by Ed Brisson with art by Mike Henderson. And of course the covers are by one of my favorite artists, Declan Shalvey. Uh, this book's been really good so far. Uh, it's kind of building towards what I'm assuming is the final story for uh, Old Man Logan. He has had a very good run starting off in his uh, kind of... Uh, alternate Marvel Universe story, Old Man Logan, and then transitioning through Secret Wars into the main Marvel continuity. So this has been really good. I've been really interested to see exactly how they wrap this up. They're kind of building towards the eventuality of Old Man Logan's timeline and his efforts to kind of get everything on the right track and away from his potential future. But we will go ahead and jump to the synopsis right here. Left for dead. Logan's adamantium sickness is advancing, and the greatest medical minds of the Marvel U want one last checkup. Also, Hawkeye versus Mysterio. A glass fishbowl makes for an awfully large target. Plus, a special appearance by your least favorite X-Man. So, a lot of stuff, I guess, is going on in this book. So, I'm interested in seeing what happens there. Uh, You should definitely pick it up. Next up, we have Thor number 10, written by Jason Aaron, with art by Michael Del Mundo. Uh, What is there to say about Jason Aaron writing Thor? Uh, He's been doing so good. I've really been loving anything that I've read by Jason Aaron when it comes to the God of Thunder, and they are ramping up for the big uh, War of the Realms crossover that we're going to be seeing in the next couple months, and this seems like a really... I don't want to say it's like a side story, because I feel like, especially just from the cover, uh, we're going to be getting a lot of like important story beats, but... Uh, We'll have to judge and see exactly what goes on there, but here is the synopsis. All Father Odin, Father of Ruin, rode to the War of the Realms. For months, the realms have burned with the flames of Malekith's war, while Almighty Odin did nothing. Now, Asgardia is lost in the sun, the rainbow bridge is shattered, and the All Father sits alone in the empty ruins of old Asgard drunk on mead and despair. If Odin is going to save what's left of the realms, he'll have to undertake the most difficult labor of his very long life. Not by being the omnipotent Allfather, but by being, finally, just a father to the mighty Thor. So yeah, um, the uh, Thor and Odin relationship, at least in comics, has been pretty well documented as being pretty bad so um this book might be the start of them kind of patching their uh relationship together which they are definitely going to need in the upcoming war of the realms next up we have detective comics number 998 written by peter j tomasi with art by doug monkey uh this has been so good so good so far they're really setting up a great uh, great mystery on who's been attacking all of the people who have essentially been the building blocks for who Batman is. So I'm really interested to see if uh, 
if this book gives us any more hints. We do see on the cover that Etrigan is going to be showing up. Jason Blood, I'm sure, is not far behind. So we'll jump into the synopsis here. Batman's tried everything on Earth to stop the menace hunting his friends and family. Now, it's time to turn to things not of this Earth. In the past, whenever Batman's encountered the supernatural, he's turned to Jason Blood for guidance, and to Etrigan, the demonic entity living inside him. But securing their help is never simple, and what Blood has to show him will shake Batman to his core. So I'm interested if... Um, cause the synopsis almost seems like Etrigan is going to be, and Jason Blood by extension, are going to be a big push for uh, solving this mystery. And I feel like that's kind of out of left field, um, especially like this far in. But I'm down for a little bit of supernatural. Seeing Batman, who is very, uh, very grounded and very methodical kind of going up against uh, anything that's supernatural is always really interesting to see. So we'll see where he goes from there. Next up, we have Winter Soldier number three of five, written by Kyle Higgins with art by Rod Reese. I have freaking loved this book. This book has been so good so far, especially introducing the new character of RJ, who is basically like a mini Winter Soldier that Bucky is now going to have to kind of reshape and save in a way from uh from repeating the past mistakes that he's made uh it's just been so good the art's been beautiful kyle higgins has been writing some of the best that i've ever seen from him and that's saying a lot because i'm a really big fan of kyle higgins as a writer but i've really been enjoying this so let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here Having pulled RJ out of Hydra, Bucky begins diving into the mystery of the young killer's past. Where does he come from? Who are his parents? How do you rehabilitate someone who's only ever known death? You give him something new to live for. So yeah, um, I love the idea of Winter Soldier picking up a sidekick that's kind of just like him, though the uh, limited... Uh, since this isn't a limited series, only five issues, it's kind of giving me uh, kind of just the feeling that RJ might end up dying at the end of this. Uh, so far from what we've seen of him, I've really enjoyed him, so I hope that's not the case. So yeah, I, again, I love this. Pick this up. If you haven't picked up the past two issues, definitely do that and then pick this one up as well. And finally, we come to the final book of this week, and that is Flash number 64. Written by Joshua Williamson with art by Raphael Sandoval. Uh, this has been interesting. The first uh, issue of this crossover I thought was pretty interesting and really well done. I, uh, there, It's weird because they really marketed this as a Heroes in Crisis tie-in. And it kind of sounded like, oh, you know, Flash and Batman are going to be teaming up to find out um, who the killer is for heroes in crisis though i always figured you know that's going to be a revelation that we get to in the main heroes in crisis book so i was a little confused by them putting it into like a tie-in crossover with batman and the flash but it feels like that's not where we're going now uh, after the first issue it was revealed that uh, gotham girl seemingly has gone uh crazy again and is using her powers and the uh, last page reveal from the first issue was that uh, she is trying to revive her brother, uh, formerly known as Gotham, in the uh, first arc of the Tom King Batman run. So I like that they're doing continuity. I like that they're calling back to these characters. I was a really big fan of the Gotham and Gotham Girl characters, how everything kind of went tragically wrong for them and where they were going to take her next. So I'm happy to see her in this. I just kind of wish that they had marketed it as what it is rather than what they thought would uh, hook readers in. So I am really enjoying this. Uh, the first issue I actually really enjoyed. I don't want this to sound like, oh, it's false advertising and I hate this, because I don't. It's really good. I'm always a fan of seeing other writers take on Batman uh, who haven't particularly written Batman before. And I, th I think Joshua Williamson did write a little bit of Batman during the last crossover, but he gives a different flavor to Batman that uh, Tom King usually doesn't. They stay in line with each other, but they're different quirks that Joshua Williamson includes. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's jump into the synopsis here. The Last Cold Case Part 2 
the two greatest detectives in the DC Universe take on the one cold case that will tear them apart. As chief architect of the sanctuary program that costs so much for so many, especially Wally West, Batman will be held accountable by The Flash. A cold case from the Justice League's past has mysteriously reopened, and Batman and The Flash, the only two heroes who stand a chance of cracking the case, are at each other's throats. Our heroes must combat a demon from the past while burying their own inner demons in the process, and neither the world's greatest detective nor the fastest man alive will ever be the same again. But who is really pulling the strings here? And how does Gotham Girl fit into all this? Friendships will be tested and blood will be spilled in this titanic crossover event. So yeah, um, I think they're, again, in that synopsis, they're leaning really heavy on the Heroes in Crisis stuff. And they only really, they didn't really mention a whole lot of it. Um, there's definitely tension between Batman and Flash. I hope they play that up a little bit more in this issue. But I'm... I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> I really like uh, Batman and the Flash stories because they come from similar backgrounds when it comes to uh, they're both detectives, but they approach cases and superheroing very differently. So definitely down for that. And that is going to wrap up this week's comics countdown. Uh, to recap, we have Dead Man Logan number four. We have Thor number 10, Detective Comics number 998, Winter Soldier number three of five, and Flash number 64. And that is going to about do it for this week. Uh, thank you very much for uh, listening all the way to the end. It really does help us out. Uh, another way you could help us out, feel free to give us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting platform that you happen to be listening to us on. Uh, I've been really getting a lot of good feedback from people just whether they have an idea for a future episode, whether they're talking to me about previous episodes, or just in general things they want to talk about. I love having conversations with you guys, and I really enjoy getting to do episodes like this. So um, we are nearing uh, <laughs> we are nearing our one-year anniversary, uh, March 10th. 2018 was when I uploaded the very first episode of Geek Explained onto SoundCloud, and um, we are pretty much nearing that uh, that date. Now I haven't decided whether I'm gonna do because this year um, our uh, I guess our anniversary episode on March 10th. Uh, March 10th is on a Sunday where we normally, fingers crossed, do uh, episodes on Wednesdays. So I'm kind of trying to decide if maybe I'll do like a, hey, here's a special one year anniversary episode. And then we'll also have a regular episode on, um, on uh, I guess that would be the 13th after that. Or if I'm just going to kind of collect it all together for the 13th so let me know if you have uh, a preference either way um, this is of course a uh, podcast for the geeks by the geeks so i really appreciate any kind of input that you folks have on uh, how to make this podcast better i'm a year in almost and i'm still learning every day so i really appreciate uh, pointers i've gotten from other podcasters people who uh, are in the comics realm as well as uh, film and TV. There's a lot of big stuff that I'm planning on this year, not just for the podcast, but also for myself. So I will keep you all posted on that. But uh, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, expect some good stuff. I've got I've got some good stuff planned out for the uh, remainder of this. Uh, year i guess of this first year of the podcast leading into our anniversary episode so stay tuned for that and we will be right back here on wherever podcast uh, or whichever podcast platform you happen to be listening on same geek time same geek channel and uh for geek explain this is eric azana thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time <laughs>